The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Friday, June 3rd. A journey through 30 years of craft beer, presented by Pat Conway from Great Lakes Brewing Company. Hello and welcome. Uh, welcome to the Saver Salons. Um, Saver's a pretty amazing experience, and I think these are the best part of Saver because not only do you get to taste beers that aren't available down on the floor, but you get to hear a little bit more about the story behind the beers. Um, one housekeeping note, these salons are being recorded for craftbeerradio.com and, and will be up on craftbeer.com. Um, so if you do have a question, if you could hold and, and speak in the microphone, the people who aren't as lucky as you and, and don't get to be here can at least hear your question, even if they don't get to taste these beers. Um, so I'd like to introduce Pat Conway and Mark Hunger, who are from Great Lakes Brewing Company. They're going to tell us a little bit about how their brewery's grown and the industry has changed over the last 30 years. And, and being a stats guy, before I, I started this, I looked. And in 1986, when Great Lakes started planning, uh, there were 124 breweries in the country. So... And now there's, what, 5,000? Uh, about 4,500 and uh, 6,000 active licenses. So it's a, it's a little bit different. And by the end of our conversation, it'll be 6,000. Yeah, exactly. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to them. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. So uh, I think it was two weeks ago I was in Philadelphia for the Craft Brewers Conference, and Charlie Papazian was the founder of the Brewers Association and now retired director and he wanted to interview some of the pioneers uh, because he thought it was interesting that some of these breweries, like ourselves, that began in the mid-'80s um, had no real roadmap, and he was fascinated by that, so he wanted to record those thoughts. So we interviewed myself and Sierra Nevada and other establishments that are uh, well-known in um, the craft brewery scene in the United States. But a lot of the questions I didn't know how to answer because he was like, well, how in the hell did you guys do it? If you weren't a brewer, and if you lived in Chicago, but you wanted to do this back in Cleveland, I mean, how did all that energy coalesce, and how did you make that happen? I said so much of it had to do with uh, luck, but also hard work, of course, but then some of that outlier stuff where you meet somebody that if you hadn't met, that next step probably wouldn't have happened. So it actually began, um, our history began when I was a... Um, a student at Loyola University in Chicago, and I lived, I went to school in Rome for a year. And not that Rome is the hotbed of beer consumption, because the Romans and the Greeks, even to this day, are more wine-based cultures, as opposed to the Egyptians and um, the Sumerians. But um, we were able to take uh, not too lengthy train rides up over the Alps into Germany and Austria and Belgium, and then our people are from Ireland. so over the British Isles and uh, to Ireland and in England and all those great ales. But then when I came back to the United States, I was at University of Chicago in graduate school and I was bartending at night and I used to sell a lot of imported beers and I went, it's obvious that there's a change in the American palate, but the big breweries aren't responding. So, you know, I'm a school teacher now in inner city high school in Chicago, but you know, what about that brewery? And my wife said, you know, I'm actually frankly tired of you talking about it. Either build the goddamn brewery or don't do it, but quit talking about it. So, whoa. So we moved back to Cleveland, and then I left teaching, and um, 
my brother Dan, who is a loan officer at a bank in Cleveland, uh, said, so what's going on? I said, well, I have this idea of building this brewery in Cleveland. He, and he, Dan had gone to the same school in Rome uh, years, the 10 years uh, later. So we were talking about fresh, lusty, full-bodied beers of Europe. My brother certainly resonated with him because he had gone to the same school. So um, I showed him my business plan, and as a loan officer, he said, well, you know, I do deals all the time, and you need to do this, this, and this, because if you're going to sell this and you want to get financing, you got to tweak this, you know. So we um, did, and then eventually he said, you know, instead of just me doing deals all the time, I have an entrepreneurial spirit, so I think I'm going to just join forces and become a partner. So we now, 30 years later, have been partners, and there's, we're two of nine children, and Dan's the youngest son of the five sons in the family, but um, he was the financial officer back then, and he still is to this day. And so I like to think that we have complementary skills. Um, he's smart, I'm not. Uh, he's nice, I'm not, you know, whatever. So, um, so we then had to, to figure out, well, where, where we have no roadmap, and I, do, I did find a notepad from years ago. I actually called Ken Grossman, who's the president of um, Sierra Nevada, founder, and asked him about this and that. And I remember on my note card, he has, was at like 20,000 barrels. He's over a million barrels today. But I, I still remember a nice um, esprit de corps with young breweries that are all starting out, and they're all sharing information, and I, I treasure the fact that so many young breweries were doing that, and I hopefully they still do it today, I'm not sure. Um, so we, we looked for a place uh, that, uh, that could house our, our brewery, and we found this old moribund section of Cleveland called Ohio City, and uh, we found these abandoned buildings that were boarded up, and we asked the um, landlord, could you lease us these five-year with two five-year options, and he reluctantly leased us the buildings because he wanted to sell the buildings at a later date and be cashed out on the appreciated value. But I said, but you're not going to have the value change unless we become the catalyst for change. So he reluctantly leased us the buildings. And then um, a couple years later, he went bankrupt, not from because we didn't pay rent, <laughs> but because he had a, a problem with um, the drink and with drugs. But um, <laughs> Salute, right? <laughs> so, um, if we could backtrack to the, um, oh yeah, okay, well, why don't we stay right there. That's, that's the neighborhood that uh, our buildings looked like when we moved in the 70s, 80s. It looked pretty much the same as this building does right now. And this was a livery stable right here. This was the Market Tavern. Um, this was the Herman McLean Feed and Seed. This was the Silver Dollar Saloon, and upstairs was um, Burlesque and brothels. This corner, uh, old timers told me that women would be there, come hither. They would stand in this turret up here. But uh, when we occupied the space, the city in their wisdom decided to invest in the, um, the streetscape. And so this is what it looks like now in the year 2016. And then that was, and then now it's fully developed trees, and, and this has become one of the nicest alfresco dining areas in the city. So our story is not just about bringing back brewing to Cleveland, but we were uh, urban renewal people, and we were retrofitting buildings and bringing back the historic charm. And in fact, there's the Elton building on the corner. 
that's where the, the, uh, the gals of the night were up on the corner there. Um, on the roof, we have solar panels, and we've kept the, the history of the building inside. And um, we're about to add uh, a whole series of solar panels on our brew house across the street. This is the inside of the bar. This is made for the tiger mahogany. There's a couple bullet holes in the bar. Elliot Ness used to drink at the bar when he was safety director of Cleveland. After he sent Capone to jail, he came to Cleveland. He ran the police and fire department. And our mother was his stenographer. And she used to take dictation from Ness. But Ness was purportedly a, a very frequent visitor after prohibition in this bar. And there's a couple bullet holes in the bar, actually three different that the second column in has a, a hole in it, which we have a, a flag in, and it says bang. But the third column is the 38 caliber slug. It's still lodged in the bar. And so, but that bar is so magnificent that uh, back in the day, uh, breweries used to own bars, and what they would say, they were called tied houses. They would say, we'll build that beautiful bar for you, or we'll take care of your licensing fee, or we'll put in new furniture, but then the trade-off is you have to carry only our beer. And now it's uh, patently illegal. They call it tied houses. And so those days are gone. But there were very expensive uh, strategies to control the environment, the brewing environment. But I, don't, I can't say with certitude that that bar was built by a brewery, but I wouldn't doubt it. If we could go back to um, our, himself after Dan and myself upstream there. This is. Um, my brother Dan was a banker. I was a school teacher in Chicago, and um, the uh, I looked under B for brewers in the phone book, and there were no brewers. And Cleveland had 30 breweries in the 1870s. They say the golden age of brewing in Cleveland was uh, from 1870 to year 2000. They had 30 breweries, and uh, it was a huge brewing city, just like Cincinnati and and in Philadelphia and New York and Chicago. But I looked under B for brewer in the phone book, and there were no breweries. So I, there is a line that says brewer and soft drink union. So I called them, and I said, well, where are all the breweries? I lived in Chicago 15 years. He goes, they're all gone. I said, seriously, they're all gone? And I said, well, I'm looking for some expertise because I'm not a brewer. And so they said, this chap on the top, his name is Thane Johnson. And they said, you might give him a call. He was the one that ran the last brewery in Cleveland called Schmitz, whose mother plant was out of Philadelphia. He did a million barrels of beer in this plant in Cleveland, which is around the volume of Sierra Nevada right now. And, but it was not national. It was in this Great Lakes region. He was retired. I said, Thane, I have this concept. Well, uh, we'll start as a brewery restaurant, and then people will come to us and experience the, the, the flavors of the beers, but they will complement with award-winning food and service. And then the next step, we will hand bottle and then keg and then that's what we did incrementally year after year after year but Thane was the first uh, person that we had contacted and I said would you rather would you like to be part of this and he said well I brewed for 40 years and I'd rather not risk uh, my life savings but if you want to hire me as a consultant so we did and then we found that there was a brewery out in Colorado that was for sale so we hired Thane to fly out with me we rented a car hotels and everything and he looked at it and he said, I wouldn't hit a dead dog in the ass with this, this stuff. He said, you hired me as a, as a consultant. I would never brew with that equipment. And I went, well, I just spent a fortune this far. I said, well, you know what? Let's go out and have a drink and talk about it. And then we did. And we had a couple more drinks. And before you know it, we were flying to Cal California. 
And then he called his wife, said, I'm at the airport, honey. She goes, all right, I'll be right out. He goes, no, I'm in San Francisco. She was like, he goes, it's a long story. So we went up and down the coast and looking at Little Breeze, went to um, Anchor and, and Sierra Nevada. We didn't because it was further north at Chico, but I had already talked to Ken Grossman, so I had notes about his operation. But then we're flying back to Cleveland and somewhere over the Rocky Mountains, he said, why don't we build our own brewery? And I went, well, that'd be a great thing. I said, we might be able to stretch our, our upfront dollars. And I said, but you're a brewmaster. You're not a brewing engineer. And he went, but I know Charlie Price, who's the, the other chap there. He said he's a, a broom um, engineer for 40 years, 35 years. So he said, the two of us have 75 years experience. Let's sit around a round table and we'll make our own brewery. And we did. We sat around this table and we said, we're going to start in a brewery restaurant environment. We went a little seven barrel system, which is like 14 kegs worth. And he uh, designed all the piping and, and the circumference of the louder ton and the fermenters and all. And then we outgrew the, um, we decided to do another brewery in the building behind us, which we did. And then we did another brewery and, and Charlie Price and Thane were instrumental as being our, our experts all along the way. And it's, what if he had, I had picked up the phone and said, what do you think, Thane? And he said, I'm not interested. You, you sound like you have the IQ of an artichoke or whatever he would have said, but he didn't. So all those things about luck and, and some kind of relationships that happened that if they didn't happen, who knows what would have happened. But this is the brewery that Thane ran. It was called the Christian Schmidt Brewing Company. They did over a million barrels. And these kettles are made out of copper. They're stunningly beautiful. Uh, kettles and when we went to look for supplies after this place had closed, Thane said, "Well, if you reach into the louder ton, we can take some of these strainer plates and you can use them at the, your little tiny seven-barrel system, which is big as this table." And so we found a few valves and this and that. But other than that, it was so huge—a million barrels—and we're talking about doing a thousand barrels. This did over a million barrels. So I would go back occasionally looking for other things. I went in one day and that. All the kettles were gone. The thieves had broken in, in the middle of the night and had cut all the copper out and stacked up the copper pieces. And all that was left was holes in the floor. They stole every piece of copper and they stripped out all the wiring. And one night during the middle of the night, two thieves ran into each other and they killed each other. It was two homicides one night. Um, and so I stopped going back looking for items. Um, did we talk, Mark? Did we pour the Dortmunder, but I don't think we talked about Mark Hunger's our brewmaster. He's been with us almost 20 years. We have a very low turnover rate at Great Lakes Spring because we have a nice uh, culture that I think most of our employees like working there. Mark, do you want to talk about the Dortmunder? I think it's pretty much gone, but... <laughs> what, talk about the Dortmunder. Dortmunder? Dortmunder is pretty much the uh, go-to beer for Great Lakes. Uh, it's been around since pretty much at the beginning. Um, it was actually the second beer that was developed. Uh, we're talking within days. I know that because I have the original brew sheets in my office. Um, Elliot Ness was the first one, but Dortmunder was the second one, actually uh, uh, brewed. But Dortmunder became the flagship. Um, and like I said, it's our, it's our go-to lager, uh, nice full-bodied golden lager. Um, it's, it obviously has German origins, but we do use some American hops, uh, but I think it, it has a very good, uh, well-balanced, uh, it's a, just a well-balanced beer. And uh, one thing I think this beer does highlight and does a very good job is uh, 
obviously we make a lot of lagers, uh, which is more unusual in the craft industry. Uh, more and more people are making pilsners now and then, you see that. But from the very beginning, we made a lot of lager beers. And uh, we have our own proprietary lager yeast. And uh, I've heard several stories. I don't know if you know the exact origin of that, Pat, how we got our lager yeast. I think it was originally a strain that Siebel had, uh, I believe. Uh, but I, I've heard other stories, too. But uh, it's a very distinctive yeast. And I think uh, this Dortmunder would not be Dortmunder if it didn't have that yeast. So it's, uh, it's a straightforward, balanced beer. And I think you guys are, have the Pilsner probably right now. Um, Pilsner is just a, a straight up, um, good, straightforward Pilsner beer. Um, two row, like we have there in Munich, uh, German, uh, German malt profile. Sterling is actually a, uh, similar to a Saz hop. So just a, just a really easy drinking, uh, straightforward um, uh, Pilsner beer. And we're very proud of it. Uh, we th everybody, it, it's sold very well at the pub and uh, we're really looking forward to this beer doing well. Actually, the turntable, we're the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and so that whole music, you know, we're trying to tie our names somehow to some, um, some kind of civic activity. The Dortmunder actually we used to be called the Heisman. Uh, John Heisman of Heisman Trophy Fame's home looks at the brewery Kitty Corner from our brewery, and so we thought it's got a great Teutonic name. Uh, it certainly conjures up excellence, and so we won a gold medal at the Great American Beer Festival for the Heisman. But then the Downtown Athletic Club of New York said they were going to sue us because they give out the Heisman Trophy and they own the name. And so we, as Callow Youth, uh, decided, well then let's come up with a different name and our brewmaster's wife said, well it just won a gold medal at the GABF and it's a Dortmunder, so why don't you call it Dortmunder Gold? And so we went, oh okay. And then years later we found we could have retained the name Heisman because Heisman owned the name as it relates to intercollegiate sports excellence in football, but not Pan, right? But that the horse had already left the barn and so to this day it's still uh, Dortmunder Gold, but back in the day, in fact, we have, we've been open almost 30 years, some old codger might come in and he'll say, can I have a Heisman? And that means I was one of the original people that came here. Uh, a late entry here in the room is Charlie Papazian, who I referred to earlier. Uh, Charlie is um, the man who's behind all the brains of the Brewers Association. Charlie's the one I, I mentioned that had interviewed some of us pioneers and asked questions like, how in the hell did you guys make this happen? And it was, um, it was a great interview. And he said he interviewed dozens of breweries and all the stories are so very different, but there is kind of a consistent web of lunacy there, right? Um, okay, so Thane, um, we designed our brewery, and, um, but then we outgrew it. But um, just like we took a moribund space of old bird out or boarded up buildings, we wanted to expand again, and we, we, we expanded our second brewery behind us. It was an old department store called Freeze and Sheely, and um, we put a second brewery there, but then we outgrew that in a couple years. This building was across the street. This was the stables of an old brewery called Schlatter Brewing Company. Schlatter was a, a, a Munich uh, family that came uh, over uh, in the middle of the 19th century, but we, this was the brewery across the street, 
It's now a supermarket, but this building used to be there, but it never survived uh, uh, prohibition. And so uh, that magnificent piece disappeared. But the, the stables was the first picture, and now you can see now we put a roof on it, and then the, the, the final picture is our, our brewery. So we just took this dilapidated old stables brewery uh, uh, function and, and turned it into our brew house. The downside is now we're landlocked, we have no room to grow, and these are our 75-barrel uh, brewing vessels. They're quite stunning, uh, but we have no room to grow, and so right now we're actively uh, negotiating on some space that's probably a mile from the brewery, and we hope that it happens because we feel that we still need to be in Cleveland because there's these real strong civic connections between breweries and, and, and the community. And back in the uh, 19th century, you, these breweries were a hugely important fabric. Uh, they were as important as sports or newspapers or politics. Breweries were hugely important. And when we first started, as um, here are the new vessels that we just fermenters, we came in, we opened up the roof because they were so high, but we had to keep the architectural structure there intact because we're, we're an historic part of Cleveland. You have to uh, make sure that you, you don't deface the, the structures. But um, we feel that um, the next brewery should still be in the city because we want that strong civic connection and we don't want to grow too fast and too big and ruin that rapport we have with our community with our staff, with our, our consumers, and with our suppliers. And so every brewery has their own strategies, but our strategy right now is keeping the Great Lakes region. Don't be a mile wide and an inch deep. Try to keep it closer to home. Always have fresh beer. And um, this is a strategy we've employed for close to 30 years, and it still works for us. So that's, that's how we're going to continue to grow. Uh, this is the Coast Guard Station, which is uh, at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River, and it's um, where we have our Burning River Fest every year. Um, it's a, an, an old building that was built in the late 30s. The, the style is called Modern. It's like real sleek lines with rounded windows. And at night, we light it up, and we have 4,000 people show up. And we've raised close to $500,000 that we've given money back to groups that work in the area of uh, water and environmental protection. But also, we're now raising money to preserve this building. Actually, um, uh, Arnold Palmer was stationed there for three years when he was in the Coast Guard station. And um, we tried to get him at last festival to show up, but I guess he's long in the tooth and his legs and his hips aren't, aren't good. But um, he was stationed there three years. In fact, he said he honed his game playing at all the public courses in Cleveland when he was a young 25-year-old. Um, if you could go back to those, well, all right, as long as we're here. This is our beer garden. Um, we have a real strong environmental uh, effort, and this is um, a, a, a space that was vacant after the livery stable was torn down, and we used to only use it like maybe 60 days a year because of Cleveland's weather. And so we decided to put a retractable roof with straw bale walls, a radiant heat fireplace, and a radiant heat floor. So in the dead of winter, we dine out here now all year round, and, then it, and we just closed the roof with this fabric, we, back in when I was a student, they called that a Roman curtain. The Colosseum had a curtain. And um, so it was just a simple fabric. And so when we close it and we heat the floor and we have the radiant heat fireplace and the, the heat from the fireplace radiates in the space, we dine out there now all year round. And we can't think of a better environmentally sensitive, commonsensical way of, um, of expanding our, our revenue. 
This is Katie Simmons, one of our servers. Actually, how many titles does she have? She's something else, too. Four titles? We asked our, our staff, we have a zero waste policy. Instead of take, make, waste, it's take, make, remake. We want zero waste. And there's like close to four or 5,000 breweries right now. We're like the 20th largest. Our dumpster bills last year are like $1,200. Wow. Everything needs a new home. Instead of just take, make, waste, take, make, remake. And one of our staff in charge of maintenance said, when we shrink wrap pallets, we have all these tubes of cardboard that are like iron. And when we make Christmas ale, it's made with ginger, honey, and cinnamon. We have tons of cinnamon sticks. So we said, why don't we dry and crush the cinnamon sticks, put them in the tubes, crimp the edges, and make logs for our beer garden, uh, fireplace. So we took two waste streams and made fuel. In fact, if we really get smart and we do many, many more of them, we could actually be selling these cinnamon logs out of our store. So it becomes a revenue center. <laughs> this is just a picture showing that none of our cardboard goes, but at the base of everyone's desk are little baskets. All your paper goes in there. If you go in the kitchen, we're trying to get all the kitchen scraps. We don't want to go anything into a landfill. Kitchen scraps could become uh, compost for our organic gardens that we have. This is our fatty wagon that runs on straight vegetable oil. If you go to Indians games or Cavs games, you can take the fatty wagon and the fumes smell like french fries. And so sub subliminally, when people are out dining in front of our building, they start ordering french fries. They don't even know why. And that's why. Just kidding. Um, if we have a low-fill beer, let's say the Edmund Fitzgerald Porter, we don't just sewer it because when you buy that bottle, it says six 12-ounce bottles. But if it's only eight or 10 ounces in that bottle, we can't just sell it. So instead of opening it and sewering it, we give it to an artisan ice cream maker around the corner and he makes a chocolate chip porter ice cream. Um, we also give uh, barley to an artisan baker and he makes all our pretzels and bread for our company. This is an organic farm four blocks down the street from us. These things, these pretzels are to die for, and he uses the spent grain in addition to other grains, and he's from Switzerland, Zos, the Swiss baker. Uh, this is uh, where we take uh, brewery waste and use it as compost, and so from garden back to the brewery in season, because this is not Napa Valley, we can't just grow things all year round, but when it's in season, all the lettuces and tomatoes and onions and leeks come right from here to the brewery. These are some of these heirloom tomatoes, but if you notice, there's a lot of blemishes on these products, and um, of the big chains, they don't sell these things because they're not delectable enough visually, and we think it's horrifically uh, um, wasteful. So we're on the new agenda about eliminating this whole concept of waste, that if something has a blemish on it's still good food. And we waste probably 50% of all food consumed in the United States ends up in a landfill, and we're, our new initiative now is zero waste, understand that there's millions, if not in the universally, a billion people who go to bed every night hungry, and here we have this culture where we're throwing food away. It's just reprehensible. So this is what we are trying to do. This is called responsible purchasing. If we all wear our t-shirts and our scarves and our hats, but some young girl in Bangladesh is getting paid a bowl of rice for working in a, in a horrifically dangerous environment, we feel that we get a shirt that's cheap, that that's probably not the most reasonable, enlightened way to go. So we want to know now, where does our shirts come from? Who's making them? Are they being paid well? Is it safe? And it's very complicated because this is global in its scope, and it's really difficult because this country raised the cotton. This company, this country assembled it. They decaled it. 
then they sent it over here and it was boxed. And so you're trying to follow this whole global exercise and it's slightly brain damaging. And, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. And so we've been working with Patagonia about trying to make sure that everything we do is as responsible as we can. And even though something's made in China, doesn't necessarily mean that we don't want to work with the Chinese uh, company, but are you paying them well and is it safe, right? This, are we pouring the blackouts down? Mark, do you want to talk about what we've got in front of us here? This is the uh, barrel-aged blackout stout. Uh, give it a little background. Uh, the base beer uh, is an imperial stout. Got its name from the uh, blackout of, uh, when was that, 2000 and 2001. 2001? I think so. And uh, this beer was uh, way back around that time. Um, it was, uh, they upped the alcohol content. Uh, in the state of Ohio, I believe, and uh, that was one of the first uh, higher alcohol beers, I believe, we came out in a package, in a four-pack. And then uh, later on down the line, um, obviously craft brewers are always uh, looking for new things to do, uh, innovation, so on and so forth, and uh, obviously barrel aging uh, de has developed greatly over the past 10, 15 years. And, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, some of the first beers to be barrel-aged are the heavier, uh, more robust beers. Uh, Imperial Stouts is probably a, a favorite of many of those. And this is exactly what we did. Uh, we've been doing this for in barrel-aged for, I would say, at least 10 plus years. So uh, this is a 2014 vintage. Um, we uh, age it in a... Uh, pretty much a blend of barrels. We don't get uh, barrels from one particular uh, bourbon producer. It's a, uh, could be Jim Beam, could be many of the bourbon producers down there in Kentucky. Uh, it's kind of difficult right now to get a sole uh, producer if you're making a large volume. But uh, this, uh, when you age it in the barrels, uh, obviously you get some of those wood notes from the, the barrel and some of those bourbon notes. Um, I tend to get a lot of uh, some vanilla uh, and things like that. So uh, obviously the warming alcohol um, because it's, a, it's obviously a strong beer. Um, so there's a lot going on there, definitely. Um, Pat just left. <laughs> so I've got the stage here. Um, it's uh, age for like we say, six months, uh, that can vary. Um, we've, uh, we'll taste the beer uh, every two months or so. Uh, again, it, each, it, it's interesting how this goes. Uh, we'll be aging uh, 50 barrels of uh, blackout stout and uh, we'll put little uh, stainless steel nails in the side of the, the barrels and uh, taste them every two months or so. And it's amazing how the character of the beer will change uh, just over a month or two. And each barrel will age differently. Um, but when all is said and done, uh, we'll take those, as you can see in the picture here, uh, and we'll blend them all together to get one cohesive uh, uh, mixture. And uh, it's, it's really been a, a pretty good seller for us. What's next here?
quality. We're jumping around here. Um, quality control uh, is the next topic. Uh, we are obviously very, um, as as a lot of craft brewers know, uh, quality is, if, if you don't make quality beer, you're not going to last. Um, and we've invested in that uh, quite extensively uh, over the years and even more extensively recently. Uh, we have a full-time lab, uh, works uh, 24, 24 hours a day, um, monitoring our, our beers during the fermentation. Uh, we have a very automated process, um, computer-controlled uh, fermentations uh, that we can, uh, I can look on my computer and see where some of the fermenters are in their fermentation process. I was doing that in the hotel room, so that's <laughs> what a brewer does on his off time. Um, so we're very serious about that, and if you're not serious about that, it, it's, it's going to be not a good future for you, so we take that very seriously. Here we are taking a sample of beer. Um, what's that? Now, that is this, me, when I told the, the first picture I showed half an hour ago was um, that series of buildings on Market Avenue. Well, when the livery stable building came down, this sign reappeared, and this was on the Market Tavern. It was an advertisement. It says, Lloyd and Keith's Old Stock, Kenneth Ailes and Porter's on draft for family and medicinal purposes, Dan Rogers, proprietor. This was a great sign. In fact, we just put an addition on the beer garden, but we didn't cover this because this is significant. Lloyd and Keith's and Kenneth were two of the 30 breweries in Cleveland in the 1860s, and they were all making ales and porters and stout. And it wasn't until the 70s and 80s that you got this huge infusion of Germans. 1.4 million Germans emigrated to the United States. There was the revolution of 1848. There was a lot of social and political and economic turmoil. And by the hundreds of thousands they left, and Cleveland was the beneficiary of probably three or 400,000 German. And they brought their lagers. And in a generation, people stopped drinking ales and porters and stout, and Cleveland became an enormous German lager production center. And that stood for decades. In fact, when we started as a German lager brewery, it was because Thane was a German uh, lager brewer, uh, although American interpretation of it. But we decided to go with Thane's lagers because that was a strong suit. And then only a couple years after we opened, then we added the Edmund Fitzgerald Porter, the Burning River Pale Ale. And to this day, the Edmund Fitzgerald is considered one of the top flight uh, interpretations of porters in the whole country. It's won numerous awards. But that is a great sign because this just was on the cusp of when the Germans were coming. And the names, if you could go back, Caroline, to those, that picture of those breweries, um, this was all within a couple blocks of our brewery. The names Leise, Gehring, Schlader, Uppmann, Mueller, these were all German names, and they all came from the old country, and they brought their styles. And an enormous part of the success of the, of the German beers was the fact that they had German bars, but also huge um, um, beer gardens, acres and acres of 
uh, land that was devoted to music and poetry reading and politics and dance and archery and bowling. And, and so when the prohibitionists, you know, the, the high water mark of, of the golden age of brewing was in the 1870s, 1880s, we had 30 breweries. That's also, by, not by coincidence, that was beginning to see this huge temperance movement take place. And the idea of temperance means moderation, of course, right? But temperance to the prohibitionists went, no, it's abstaining completely from alcohol, not temperance, not moderation. And so this continued to grow and grow. And they had um, a problem with the government because the government uh, taxed all beer at the Civil War. And as a result, because they wanted to fund the war, but that um, the prohibitionists were like, this is something that's gonna to have to change, but the United States was like, yeah, but we have such a huge amount of our revenue coming from taxing beer, that ain't gonna happen. But in 1913, they came up with the income tax, and the prohibitionists were like, thank you. And it gave them a reason to prohibit, prohibit any kind of alcohol consumption, So because they said, now you don't need that revenue from taxing barrels, you now got it from income tax. And that was a great boom for prohibition. And from 1920 to 1933, no alcohol could be legally manufactured or consumed in the United States. Unfortunately, unfortunately, in Manhattan alone, there was 5,000 speakeasies during that time. So you talk about a failed uh, experiment that that was at big time, right? Um, so this was unfortunate because prohibition annihilated so many breweries, the Delizes, the Schlafs. What did they start doing in the 1890s? There was a recession in 1893, and then these national breweries like Pabst and uh, Schlitz and Budweiser, they all started going national, and the little regional breweries started to suffer, and they couldn't keep up with the competition. They didn't have the huge war chest of uh, funds, so they started to decline, and then prohibition came. They, they, how are you going to stay in business when the government outlaws your product, right? So by the 1930s, a lot of them had fallen to the wayside, and they continued to fall as the nationals got stronger. And then it wasn't until we came along in the 1980s that we brought back this great tradition of brewing. Uh, Cleveland had lost when Schmitz closed and Thane was out of work. It had ended 150 straight years of brewing in Cleveland. And then when we opened in 1988, we brought it back. And it was, it was, um, it was important for us to do that because we had, I always say that back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was called the terminal case of the blands. Everything was jug wine and Wonder Bread and coffee out of cans. And, and then all of a sudden you started seeing these boutique vineyards start to spring up in California. And um, in fact, Charlie said, where did you guys get the idea for doing this? And I said, well, part of it was from living in Europe and seeing these more rusty, lusty, full-bodied, fresh beers. But also, if your ear was close to the ground, you could see something percolating in our own culture with bread, coffee, chocolate, beer, wine. And so I would say now, here we are three decades later, I'd say we as a culture have benefited greatly from these, these uh culinary changes that have taken place. I think our culture is far more interesting now than it was back in the, uh, the early 1980s. And unless you disagree, I think, aren't we just a saver? Do you think we could have done this in the 1970s and 1960s? So. What do you think triggered that? I mean, there's, you know, you, you were talking about Schmidt, or you could go into any town, but Miller, whatever you drink, they were all very, very similar beers. What do you think just in the consumer time, do you think just 
Well, they had a huge war chest of marketing dollars, and um, you know there became price there came uh, price wars when when competition got really intense in the 1890s. They started to merge. They started having consolidations. In fact, their a company became the Cleveland Sandusky Brewing Company. Eleven breweries gathered under one roof, under one umbrella, because the competition was so severe, they thought, we need to do this. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of consolidation, merger, and acquisitions going on right now as we speak. Big. And um, we're staying independent. We feel we have a culture that we want to protect. We have a great staff. We have our environmental protection. We have our triple bottom line. We have our zero waste. We have an environmental guy that's in charge of our sustainability. We have these burning river fests and all this stuff. We're afraid if somebody were to take our over our culture then and we would be cashed out, then we feel would irreparably damage the thing that we've cultivated over three decades. So we're gonna stay independent, but just because somebody else decides not to doesn't necessarily make them bad people. It's everybody has their own their own agendas. And in fact, Charlie, what would you say? It's still uh, enormously popular right now about all the mergers going on in the culture. Well, I think if you like fresh bread and you like ice creams with all these delectable ingredients, or if you like a wine that's got some depth and sophistication, doesn't it seem only natural that if you were to have a beer that was fresh and robust and flavorful that you would immediately find that far more attractive? I think, but this didn't happen in, in a New York minute. This stuff has been cultivating for three decades. and. We've been growing incrementally year after year, but we didn't come out of the shoots at 160,000 barrels, and so it's... So I think so, and, and with Charlie's effort, uh, with his organization, and trying to educate the consumer and the retailers. Um, but at some point, I'm not sure where this is going, because there's only so many tap handles at a bar, right? And there's so much, so much linear space of, of, of uh, packages at a store. So all these thousands of breweries that are thinking about coming on board, it's going to be, I think, a very complicated, very difficult thing to do. And, and then where, uh, the warehouses, the distributors, the wholesalers, they have to manage all those SKUs, those, those, those items. And how much appetite do they have to keep adding and adding instead of saying, let's focus on the winners and let's give them their day because they've a proven commodity as opposed to saying what's new and what's different and uh, I, don't, I don't know what the end game is. I Well, we, we are entertaining cans, but we have no room, and we've hit the high water mark of our product. We have no room, so we're, we're trying to expand, but canning will absolutely be part of our, 
our repertoire of packages. Uh, but these breweries, if you could go back, uh, did you talk about Rack House yet? Not yet. All right, let's do that and I'll go ahead. Incidentally, this is more of a free-flowing thing, so any other questions you guys have, that's, that's cool. The uh, Rack House Ale, uh, we talked before about the uh, Blackout Stout, which was a beer that we made and then um, started to uh, barrel age it. This particular beer we actually made specifically for barrel aging. Um, it has never been uh, served any other way but uh, barrel aged. Uh, basically a very uh, stout, uh, heavy uh, amber ale um, that is barrel aged for anywhere from four to six, four to six months or so, uh, depending on how it develops. And uh, in this beer, the Blackout Stout is obviously very, uh, has a lot of character in and of itself. Um, so that has, uh, builds a lot with the, with the bourbon barrels. But this, uh, being a very he uh, heavy amber ale, uh, you can really pick up the, the barrel aging character out of it. And um, like I said before, the vanilla notes, the, the bourbon notes, and, and stuff like that. So, and again, it has definitely uh, went with a theme of the, the higher strength uh, beers uh, with the barrel age aspect here. Go back to those pictures of Lyme's When I said that we had 30 breweries in the 1870s, most of which were lagers because they supplanted the ales and the porters stout pretty much. By 1899, all the ales were gone. And some of the brewers that tried to stay on as ale producers went out of business. Some of the Germans started making ales and lagers, and incrementally they became more lagers and less ales because they, could, they, had, a, they, they had a pulse on, on the consumer. But these breweries collectively, Lysi did 600,000 barrels, Gehring did a, a, a 150,000 barrels. Schlather did 100. So these three breweries, just within two blocks of our Great Lakes Spring, did close to a million barrels. So when you look at Sierra Nevada and New Belgium, these million barrel breweries, we had them producing that in our own backyard, and their primary uh, 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 source of consumption was Greater Cleveland. These guys actually made beer and shipped it to different, like Pittsburgh and Chicago and all that, because Back in the day, if you're going to make lagers, you needed cold beer, and they used the ice from Lake Erie. And they had a huge competitive advantage against uh, all these other breweries that were inland and more southern. And these breweries had to stop producing if they didn't have ice. But the lagers needed ice, and Cleveland had a tremendous amount of ice on Lake Erie. And so they would cut that and ship that beer and ferment and age that beer and then ship it to distant ports because of ice. But then they came out with artificial refrigeration and the Cleveland Brewers got spanked because now everybody could make beer. And their sales plummeted. They had that competitive advantage because of a simple thing called ice, right? Interesting stuff. Brewers were smart and they knew that to keep shipping beer to more distant lands was going to cost more because of shipping. Then the railroads came. Cleveland used to ship beer by lake and by canals. There's a thing called the Erie Canal that connected um, the Hudson River to Albany to um, Buffalo 
to Cleveland, and you could take beer and, and textiles and grain, and you go from Cleveland to Albany, down to New York City, and then to Europe. Then they built the Ohio Erie Canal from Cleveland down to the Ohio River, which connected to St. Louis and New Orleans, and then the, that southern tier. So Cleveland became this enormously uh, popular place for manufacturing because you had water, and they had grain, and, and you had all these textiles, and it was a perfectly situated, this was like the Silicon Valley in the latter part of the 19th century. You had John D. Rockefeller doing oil in Cleveland. You had a couple uh, hours west, west of Cleveland was Tom, Thomas Edison was born. You had Henry Ford over here. You had the Wright brothers in Dayton. You had, you had Carnegie making steel. That, if you put a concentric circle around, that was the Silicon Valley in the latter part of the 19th century. So. Um, being a Clevelander, I think you should know that. And I know our Cavs lost last night badly, but so we got to talk about these other things, you know? Hey, Pat, I have yes. a question. Sure. So we can talk a lot about the 19th century, um, but what about beer in the 21st century? And what is that like as someone that's been in beer since the late 80s? Well, I think this obsession with IPAs is going to probably continue. I, I can't, I mean, you know, citrus and, and you know, who knows, maybe they're going to add toenail clippings. I don't know. But, but it's, there's an obsession that I don't see an end point. But the one thing that I think that's, it's, that's surfacing that's been below the radar screen, and I think we're poised perfectly for it, is the attention to a lager. A soft, uh, thirst-quenching, Pilsner, or this very balanced malty Dortmunder style, or this award-winning, we have an Oktoberfest that's it's absolutely stunning. We have a Bach, it's called the Rockefeller Bach. It's really rich. Um, but we do make ales too, but I think the idea of, of having lagers as being part of a, a growing support, I think, I think that that's, its time has come. We actually made a, a Hellas years ago, it was way ahead of its time, it was very crisp and light golden Hellas, Helio. And uh, it was okay, but it just did, but it was 20 years ago, and I don't think people are ready for that. But I think, unless you disagree, I think they are right now, right? And, and incidentally, we do want to sell beer. If you make a beer that's 20 or 30%, which is like double what wine is, you'll sell like one, right? And then if you buy a, a 22 ouncer and then you open it, you pretty much have to drink it because now you've opened it, right? So I like the idea of, of uh, balance. And I like the idea of, of if you can have your high octane over here, but what about those really nice, crisp, drinkable beers that you, you wouldn't mind sitting down having two or three? Um, like if I'm gardening, I'm not going to sit and have one of these 20% beers when I'm finished. First of all, I'll start hallucinating, and <laughs> which doesn't make me a... <laughs> what was that? That's called the near beer. There, that's well, that. Right, right. Well, you know, most 90% of beer is water, or in the case of those beers, it's 98%. But no, I'm kidding. But I, I like flavor and. My, you know, and so that's, that's a tweener there. I, I'm not a fan of Bud Light. Although, if I was on a golf course and they had a glass of water 
for a bottle of water that cost three dollars, and they had a Bud Light that cost three fifty. I'll buy the, the goddamn beer. I mean, you know, fifty cents more, and I have a glass of beer in my hand. And if it's like ninety-five degrees out, I actually a Bud Light probably—it's like drinking a glass of water. And it's really refreshing, right? I think it goes through um, this product development team that's got marketing people in it and brewery people and owners and they, it's a conversation that takes place because we have this, actually, um, well, actually this, these are our brand refresh, these are all the new labels we did. We just hired an um, artist from Canada who redid all our labels so there's, we used to have some that were drawings, some were photographs and we hired him to redo all our labels and each one's got a collage, there's like stories inside the label. Like the Elliot Ness has got um, uh, stories about my mother and when she used to work for Ness. And then the Burning River has got um, the uh, clean water legislation uh, stuff in the background because the clean water legislation came as a result of our river burning. But the Chicago River burned, the Mahongahela burned, the Hudson burned, and Dusseldorf rivers were burning, but we got nailed with that. The bad news is we got nailed with that. The good news is all this great clean water legislation came as a result of that. And so we celebrate that inside the collage. You have to look for it. Actually, right now we're going through a problem with algae blooms on Lake Erie. It's the shallowest of the Great Lakes. And uh, right now uh, we have legislation. If you're uh, vomiting toxins into the river, uh, you're going to be fined. You could go to jail because of the, the water legislation in the early 70s. Right now, we have all this synthetic fertilizers and all this stuff is running off into our lake where they're causing algae blooms. And you heard about Detroit or De Toledo. They had to actually shut down their water intakes because of this problem. Well, that's a big deal uh, for the consumer, but also for our industry. So we're on the forefront of trying to work with our legislators and advocates to keep talking about that because that's reprehensible. I mean, here we got industry from stopping their, their mortal sins. Now we got big ag involved, and who would have thought, here are we are years later, that now our problem has to do with agriculture. And it's all these fertilizers and manures that are running off into the lake, and um, so. But anyway, this is our new class, and that's the last one over in the corner is the Conway's Irish Hill. That's my grandfather, Pat Conway from Ireland. And then his immigration papers are buried at the back of the label. And, the Edmund Fitzgerald Porter, our friend's dad, was first mate who died on the uh, vessel, and we asked him if we could use the name, and he said my dad would be proud. And, but so there's stuff relating to the sinking the Edmund Fitzgerald buried in the label. So we, we, we've spent a, a fortune doing this, and I know a lot of breweries are doing these brand refresh, but this was a big deal for us, and we're glad because we've gotten a lift in sales. Um, the team, that composite at the end, <laughs> this is called our staff who are hammered most of the time. <laughs> there's, there's Caroline at the end over there. But this, we just had a, every year we close our company for a day and we meet off premise and we have a summit to talk about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going in the future. And so this is after numerous beers, but after a long day's work of talking about where we should go as a, country, as a company. This is our team. We have a very low turnover rate. We have a real great street accord with our staff, and um, they, they are our most valuable assets. And that's why we close. We walk away from business to get everybody together, dishwashers, brewmasters, marketing people, owners, and we talk about stuff 
and we keep trying to improve it year after year because I think it's valuable to have your voice heard. But if your voice is heard and you don't do anything about it, then that makes it worse, right? But this is a, a great a shot of really happy, semi-drunk guys. <laughs> Leave Caroline out of this. But anyway, we just did this two weeks. Was it last week or two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. I'm sorry? We have 250 employees, but uh, this um, might be a couple hundred. So that's, that's the story of our company. We, um, we're proud of where we've come over the three decades. Uh, we're not the biggest brewery. We don't want to be necessarily the biggest brewery. We want to be the, the very profitable brewery, and we are. Uh, so, but these are big challenges coming up because as all these merger and consolidations are going, and the big boys are throwing, like Budweiser buys a craft brewery, and they're throwing money at it, how could we possibly compete at that? And we, you can't. So you have to rely on the consumer they want to support smaller independent companies. And right now, unless Charlie you disagree, I don't think the consumer really even knows who's buying who and what. And so it really has not affected, like if Budweiser bought a brewery, and I, don't, I would say most consumers don't even know that, let's say in this example, Goose Island is part of the ABI family. I, would you say that's true? But you know, the millennials are really interested in local and organic and seasonal and supporting local companies and local companies. But somehow this has kind of escaped their consciousness and it's kind of interesting because maybe in a couple of years people will say, all right, now we're getting it. We're gonna be more focused on independent, and I don't know, but right now there's no indication that the consumer cares because they don't know. I mean, everyone's got busy lives. Someone's gonna sit down and try to figure out who owns who. That's, well, well, thanks for the compliment, but you know, what's local? Well, maybe the Western Hemisphere? Um, maybe North America? No. East of the Mississippi? No. Uh, Northern? No. Ohio? No, no. Northern part of Ohio? No. Cleveland? No. West side of Cleveland? No. This particular two blocks, and it's getting insane. Let's do one more question and let's end because we're going to have to close it up. Beer brewing is a business, so when you want to retire, where does Great Lakes go? Well, if I retired, absolutely, it would just soar in popularity. Yeah. 
Well, if you go through Great Lakes Brewing, we, if you can see by our, our historic buildings, we also celebrate the history of beer in the United States. We have hundreds, maybe even thousands of beer bottles, that, have, that are, some of which are over 100 years old. Every one of them is gone. Every one of them is extinct. And so if you look at the history of beer, in fact, we're doing a beer tasting in uh, Philadelphia next week. We're replicating a beer from 5,000 years ago with, when the Sumerians made beer, and we're using these original porcelain pots and stuff. So just as a, if you're in Philadelphia next week, we're doing that. But Tuesday? But I think um, in the United States especially, if you go to Europe, there's some families that have beer has been in there generation after generation, but that historically that's never really happened in the United States. Uh, in fact, now the last holdout was probably the Anheuser-Busch, who's now part of the InBev uh, conglomerate, yeah, but, um, I'm sorry? We have a plan. <laughs> I'll talk to you about some of the things percolating. All right, on that note, let me thank Pat and Mark. Great. Enjoy the rest of Sabre. Thank you for listening to this recording from Sabre 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Saver, at craftbeerradio.com slash saver or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.